Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The conquests of the Normans in the 11th century marked a great change in the history of Europe. In England, Italy and the Middle East, they were highly successful at both war and building new administrations. And in contrast to the previous centuries, they left a very obvious physical legacy. In particular, many of the castles they built still stand today, looking as impressive as when they were first constructed. These remarkable people will become an important part of the next few chapters of the podcast. Welcome to A History of Europe, Key Battles, The Battle of Civitate, Part 1 of 4. During the next four podcasts, I will tell the history of Italy from between the fall of Rome up until 1053, the year of an important battle between Pope Leo IX and Norman invaders of Italy. These centuries witnessed a long struggle for power between various sides, with many shifts of fortune. The Battle of Civitate marks a point at which the Normans firmly established themselves in Italy, and so reshaped the politics of the peninsula. In an earlier podcast on the Battle of the Catalonian Fields, I related the fall of the Western Roman Empire. I described how during the 4th and 5th centuries AD, Germanic tribes from northern and eastern Europe migrated south to look for a new home and settled in the land of the Roman Empire. These tribes were not looking to destroy Rome. On the contrary, they were in awe of the empire's sophisticated culture, its technologies, its literary culture, its high level of living standards and its proud history and they wanted to be part of it. But what they ended up doing over time was to transform the empire beyond recognition. Different tribes took over effective control of the administration of different parts of the empire, such as the Franks in Gaul and Visigoths in Spain. The influence of the Italians contracted until the only remnant of the empire where they held any real authority was Italy. Eventually, even in Rome, real power came into the hands of a German military commander, while the emperor became a mere figurehead. In the year 476, the then chief commander, a Germanic soldier by the name of Odoacer, decided to do without the pretense of an emperor in the West. He deposed the final emperor, a teenager named Romulus Augustus, and declared himself the king of Italy. 
From this time onwards, the Italians would no longer exert power beyond their homeland. Instead, Italy became a land fought over itself by external powers all the way until the 1860s, when the peninsula finally reunited again to become one nation. When Romulus Augustus packed his bags and headed for early retirement, remarkably little changed on the surface. Odoacer was careful not to alienate the emperor in Constantinople, and therefore ruled Italy not with the title of emperor, but instead king, under nominal eastern overlordship. He was equally careful to flatter the Italian aristocracy by retaining for them all the traditional ranks of the civil service and granting minor but symbolic areas of power, such as the right to mint coins. It suited everyone to maintain this facade of unchanging Roman imperial power. The Italian aristocracy's honour was maintained. The barbarians could believe that they belonged in the heart of the empire, which they evidently didn't, and the eastern emperors could pretend the western provinces were really in their hands, even if under barbarian stewardship. The situation continued into the early 500s, despite the arrival of a new Germanic warlord, Theodoric the Ostrogoth, who deposed Odoacer in 493, and then ruled Italy until his death in 526. His period of rule was one of relative peace and prosperity, but despite this at least a few prominent native Italians must have dreamt of a return to the glory days of empire, and kicking out the barbarians. And indeed, in the year after Theodoric's death, a new and highly ambitious emperor, Justinian, was crowned in Constantinople, who immediately sought to restore the empire by reconquering its western half. The project started very well, with a quick recapture of northern Africa from a Germanic tribe called the Vandals. So Justinian must have been quite optimistic when he launched an invasion of Italy in 535. But although the south fell rapidly, the fight for northern Italy got bogged down in a frustrating and slow war of attrition. By the time the last Gothic strongholds in the north fell in 561, the Byzantines were exhausted, financially and militarily. Both sides, but the native Italians in particular, had suffered great hardships. Once Justinian had at last taken control, it became clear he had no intention of moving the capital of the empire back to Italy, or even restoring Rome to a partner city. He treated Italy instead as a rather minor frontier province. The considerable taxes raised there were not spent locally, but sent to Constantinople, and used principally for the defence of the empire's eastern borders. Nor was the Byzantine regime able to give peace to Italy. Only six years after the surrender of the last Gothic garrisons, another Germanic tribe called the Lombards entered Italy from the northeast. Since the peninsula was depopulated and impoverished after decades of war, it was easy prey. Within a few years, the invaders took over most of Italy, leaving the Byzantines with just the southern third of the peninsula. 
The first known record of Lombards was a brief mention by the Roman historian Tacitus in AD 98, who describes them as hardy fighters from the southern bank of the river Elbe. Centuries then pass until they reappear from the obscurity of the German forests. The Byzantine historian Procopius writes that they were one of three Germanic tribes used by Justinian to help defend the Danube border. However, the degree of imperial control over them was clearly limited, and this small influence only achievable by, by preventing any one tribe gain regional ascendancy. This balance, however, was upset by the rise of a people called the Avars, warrior nomads originally from the steppes of Eurasia. They pushed out the Lombards from Central Europe across the Julian Alps and into Italy. Also migrating into the peninsula at this time were parties of various other ethnic groups, including more Germanic tribes, such as Saxons and Gepids, and a Turkic people called Bulgars, all seeking new opportunities in a land left depopulated and without central authority. From 568 to 572, the Lombards went on to occupy much of northern Italy. Some cities, such as Milan, offered little resistance, but a number of towns and territories managed to hold out, most notably Ravenna, Rome and Perugia, which formed a band of resistance across the middle of the peninsula that stayed loyal to the empire. A capital of the new Lombard kingdom was established in Pavia, in the north. However, no king succeeded in gaining authority over the different local leaders. Instead, local dukes acquired effective power over their lands, especially in the southern duchies of Spoleto and Benevento. At first, Lombard culture differed little from the Goths or Franks, but over time they assimilated to their new homeland. They gradually adopted Roman titles, names and traditions, and abandoned their language and traditional dress. As part of this, they converted from the Arian version of Christianity to Catholicism. Despite this, they were never accepted by either the Pope in Rome or by the local Byzantine regional leader, based in Ravenna. The city of Rome, nominally still part of the empire, was becoming more independent out of necessity. There were seldom enough imperial forces to protect the far-flung outpost that it had become. This turned out to be an important factor in the development of the bishopric that we now call the papacy. Rome was forced to defend itself against frequent Lombard aggression, and its citizens turned increasingly to their bishop for protection and administration. Already in the time of Gregory the Great, 590-604, the popes were feeding the city, negotiating peace treaties, and were responsible for paying troops. Rome's practical independence from both Constantinople and the Lombards and the role the Roman Church played in this period were essential factors in the development of the Pope's spiritual authority, which became the foundation of the remarkable influence that they acquired later throughout medieval Europe. Before that, however, until the mid-8th century, the Popes counted for very little outside Italy, 
until they had the fortune to form an alliance with the Franks. In the Battle of Tours, I described how the king of the Franks had become a mere figurehead. Real power resided in the hands of Charles Martel, who unified most of France in a series of victories, including the defeat of an Arab army in southern France in 732. His son, Pepin the Short, inherited Charles' power, but desired to dethrone the king and have himself crowned. But he needed justification for this. So he appealed to the then Pope Zachary for his blessing. He suggested to Rome that it was improper for a man who had no actual power to be called a king. Was it not God's will that having granted Pepin the power, he should also take the title? It was 751, and the Byzantines, weakened by centuries of conflict with the Arabs in the east and Slavs in the Balkans, had just lost their regional capital at Ravenna to the Lombards, who were again asserting their authority. The Pope, feeling vulnerable before the growing Lombard threat and no longer able to rely on Constantinople, needed another protector. So Zachary took little persuasion to agree to Pepin's request in return for military assistance. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Pepin's first major act as king was to go to war against the Lombard king, who he defeated and forced into returning property seized from the church. And in the so-called donation of Pepin, he granted the Pope ownership of the band of territory between Rome and Ravenna, and so gave birth to the Papal States. The son of Pepin, Charlemagne, again went to war against the Lombards to remove their threat once and for all. In 774, he forced the submission of Pavia, declared himself king of the Lombards, and confirmed the papal rights over the land granted by his father. As part of the new papal-Frankish alliance, in 800, the Pope crowned Charlemagne as not only king, but emperor, and so a successor to the emperors of Rome, such as Augustus, Hadrian and Constantine. This act was in defiance of the Eastern Roman Empire of Constantinople, who knew that it was they who were the true heirs of empire. 
but the Frankish state, encompassing now the territory of France, Lombardy, Saxony and Bavaria, had grown too powerful for the Eastern Emperor to prevent it. The papacy, meanwhile, though they had managed to remove one threat, the Lombards, had gained in the Franks an ally that was dangerously powerful. From then on, the Franks would exercise great influence in northern Italy, while in southern Italy, the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento retained local authority. As for the Byzantines, from then on, their grip on the peninsula was reduced to the far south of Italy, especially Calabria and Apulia, and the island of Sicily. They did retain close links to some Italian cities, such as Naples, Gaeta and Venice, but held little effective power there. Italy now found itself in the position of being the far frontier of not only one, but two empires, a situation not at all conducive to its unity. One result was the emergence of towns that became able to effectively run their own governments. A few such as Pisa, Amalfi, Genoa and Venice flourished, gaining great wealth by trading. They achieved this by staying independent of any great powers, serving as traders for a variety of different masters at once. In the ninth century, this mosaic of competing powers became further complicated by the arrival of the Arabs. I earlier described how northern Africa was taken from Byzantines by Arab armies during the late 8th century. By the time of Charlemagne, the previously monolithic Arab empire had broken up. The most important state in the region was called Ifriqiya, a name originating from the Roman province Africa, which comprised Tunisia, western Libya and eastern Algeria. The local governors, or emirs, their recognised overlordship of the Abbasid Caliph, that is the supreme Islamic ruler, based in Baghdad, and were required to pay him an annual tribute, but in reality ruled independently. The local Berber population had on the whole assimilated well into Muslim rule, but occasional revolts broke out. Nor was it uncommon for the local Arab-leading families to fall out. In 800, a new ruling dynasty, the Aglabids staged a coup following five years of turmoil and overthrew the old leaders. But the threat of further revolts was still present, so the Aglabids looked north to Italy, where they saw the opportunity for expansion. Such a campaign would not only give great prestige, but also channel the destructive energies of both the Berbers and their dissatisfied fellow Arabs. And so from then on, the whole northern coastline of the Mediterranean suffered attacks from Muslims. Often these were raids for booty, such as those along the river Rhone. Sometimes, though, these attacks developed into conquest, such as on the Balearic Islands and on Sardinia. In 827, Sicily came under attack. The trigger for war was an internal conflict on the island. The Byzantine commander of the local fleet, Euphemius, fell out with the emperor and was deposed. Euphemius rose in revolt but was defeated and fled to Africa where he sought help from the Muslims to retake the island. The Agnabids agreed to send troops and a navy set sail to take Syracuse. 
The ancient city survived the assault, but the Muslims did manage to hold on to a few nearby fortresses, with Euphemius having been sidelined once his usefulness was over. The Arabs seized Palermo in 831 with the aid of reinforcements from Africa and Spain, and the town became the capital of a new Muslim province. Constantinople responded by sending expeditions to aid the locals against the Muslims, but at the time they were also struggling to defend both their eastern frontier and the island of Crete against the Abbasid attacks. Crete in fact fell to Muslims in this period as well. The fortress of Enna in the centre of Sicily was the main Byzantine bulwark against Muslim expansion on the island, but was captured in 859. The Muslims now increased their pressure against the eastern parts of the island, and after a long siege captured Syracuse in 878. The Byzantines retained control of some fortresses in the northeastern corner for some decades thereafter, launched a number of efforts to recover Sicily, but were unable to seriously challenge Muslim control over the island. Around the same time, Arab forces also crossed to mainland Italy. They took the coastal cities of Reggio, Bari and Taranto, and by 840 were penetrating as far as the southern frontier of the papal territories, having established a number of fortified bases, such as at the mouth of the Garigliano River, to the north of Naples. In 846 they even sailed up the Tiber and sacked several churches in Rome, scattering forever the bones of the apostles and martyrs. At least previous barbarian invaders, being Christians, had left the saints in peace. Afterwards, to protect against further attacks, Pope Leo IV built fortifications, converting the mausoleum of Hadrian into the Castel San Angelo. This created a new fortified area west of the Tiber, known as the Leonine City, which became, over the centuries, an important place of refuge for the popes if they lost control of Rome itself. The Frankish Emperor, Louis II, who ruled from 850 to 875, made efforts to stem the Arab advance in Italy but his successors were too busy with both their own internal conflicts and the threat of Viking raids. They probably doubted the worth of getting involved in Italy just to obtain the title of emperor. The Kingdom of Italy in Pavia subsequently degenerated into civil war between rival claimants of the throne, exacerbated by foreign raiders, in this case mainly Magyar horsemen. The Byzantines, on the other hand, were enjoying a revival of fortunes and were feeling confident enough to afford resources to try and recover Italy. They regained the cities of Atranto and Bari in 873 and 876 and much of southern Italy in 883, but their hold on the peninsula was pretty superficial. Then in the 920s and 940s, the Lombard duchies of Benevento and Salerno enjoyed a resurgence, and regained some of what they had lost. Meanwhile, the Arabs were still in complete control of Sicily, using the island as a base for attacks on the mainland. By 950, the whole of Italy, north and south, was characterised by a complex fragmentation of power into units of different sizes. 
Some fragments were quite sizable, such as the Byzantine territory. Others were medium-sized regional powers, such as Benevento, and there were also many smaller duchies based on a single city, such as Gaeta and Venice. In next week's podcast, I will continue the story of Italy. The chaotic situation of 950 would be transformed in the next decades by two new forces from the north. The first were the Saxon kings, led by Otto I, victor of the Battle of Leckfeld. The second were the Normans, who arrived in the 11th century. Both would have great influence on the story of medieval Italy. Thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles, and a Happy New Year. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.